Let's open our Bibles again to Matthew's Gospel as we continue to work our way through Matthew. Last week, Gethsemane. Now we move into the sections of Matthew that deal with the mock trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 26. You really need a Bible open and in your laps when your pastors uh, preach to you because the authority is in the text and we are expounding the text before us and we'll constantly reference it. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 47. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, may the Spirit who has inspired this word open it to our hearts, that your people may grow in grace and that those who do not know Christ may be drawn by your Spirit to put their faith in Jesus, the alone Redeemer of his people. In whose name we pray. Amen. Beginning with verse 47, the word of God. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean? But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Some of us are familiar with the essay that was written by C.S. Lewis entitled God in the Dock. It used to be, says Lewis, that man approached God with a sense of sin, but now we put God in the dock, that is, on the defendant's stand in court, or at least we think we do. We put God on trial, or we try to. We become the judge and jury of God and his ways. God takes the stand under our judgment. But despite the arrogance of modern man, we cannot put God in the dock, but God can put himself in the dock in the place of sinful man. And that is what our text is all about. God placing himself in judgment for us in the person of his son. Substitution. Here in the trial of our Lord, we see how God deals with our sin. And the great principle of substitutionary atonement is what comes to the fore. We begin with betrayal. Betrayal as Jesus is arrested. That's first, betrayal. Judas Iscariot comes with armed men having received payment about Jesus' whereabouts. They want to arrest Jesus away from the crowds of the Jews, but a large crowd nonetheless has been sent by the chief priests and the elders of the people, probably Roman soldiers along with the temple police among them. The darkness made it imperative to have Judas point Jesus out. Who would they know who that person was that claimed to be the Messiah that they want to arrest? Jesus identifies Jesus with a kiss. Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, in the ancient world, it's not much different than our own in this way. The kiss was a sign of homage and a sign of love. The sign means here, however, precisely the opposite. It is an indication of hatred. Judas despised Jesus. And Jesus answers, friend, do what you came to do. Judas was disappointed in Jesus. He was disappointed with this one who claimed to be the Messiah. He had expected a different kind of Messiah, a Messiah who would come and shake off the yoke of Rome from the people of God. He did not overthrow Rome. He taught Judas' covetous heart to care for the poor, 
And he said that he himself must die and rise from the grave in order to save sinners. What kind of Messiah is this, Judas thought. Now Judas is fully responsible for his own sin. On that great day of judgment, he will not be able to look at God and say, I did that unwillingly. He will not be able to say, my heart was, un- was not in it. He was fully and completely engrossed in sinning and is fully and completely responsible for what he did. At the same time, the scriptures make very plain that he did what the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God had purpose for him to do. Constantly, the scriptures tell us to hold these truths together, that man is fully and completely responsible for his sin, but that God is absolutely sovereign over our sin. But you and I must remember that what is revealed is the basis for our actions and our choices. And this man, Judas, was a false believer, one who professes but does not possess. He was a deceived hypocrite who cares nothing for Christ and who cared nothing for the glory of God. And if there is someone here like that, I warn you and let this text be a warning to you. This man, Judas, walked with Jesus, observed his miracles, heard his teaching, knew his kindness, felt his mercy, and yet... He did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, did not understand himself to be a sinner, and did not understand that he needed a Savior. Do not waste your opportunity to hear the gospel. Do not continue in your self-deceit, but turn from it and let Judas be your warning. There is one here who tries to defend Jesus. We know who that was because John 18 tells us that it was Peter who drew his sword and cut off the ear of the servant and even tells us the name of the servant which was Malchus. Matthew does not include the fact that Jesus heals the man's ear, but he did. And in verse 52, all who take the sword will perish by the sword, Jesus says. Violence in defense of Christ and the gospel is not the call of the church. We are told by Paul, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And Jesus in John 18 says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Look what Jesus could have done. He tells us in verse 53, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? What need do I have of your sword, Peter, or for for the disciples to fight for me in my kingdom? 12 legions. Now, a Roman legion was 6,000, and so Jesus is talking about 72,000 or more angels that instantaneously could have come to his rescue. But Jesus refuses to do this. John 10, 18 tells us why. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So even though they come, they arrest, they take Jesus, they could only do so because Jesus in sovereign majesty has determined that he will lay down his life to save his sheep, to save his people from their sins. And it must be fulfilled as God has decreed. Verse 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? If I call these legions, how will the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? 
And he underscores that again as we read on at verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. This is what God said must happen for the salvation of sinners like you and like me from our sins. It must be fulfilled as God has decreed. This is stressed in these verses. Had not Isaiah predicted that the Messiah must be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. It must come about. The divine must is behind my sacrifice on the cross. Then all the disciples, we read in verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. Do you remember verse 31 of this chapter? Jesus says to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus said this would happen. These disciples were not false disciples, like Judas. But they were very defective disciples. Thank God for his grace. Betrayal. Second thing, the trial before Caiaphas. Held in haste, a quick gathering at night. This is the highest council in Judaism, the arbiter of justice in the land. The Sadducees had the majority power in the Sanhedrin. It was composed of the leading priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, having 70 members, but 23 made a quorum. When it says that all of the Sanhedrin gathered the whole of the Sanhedrin, it may mean the whole constituting a quorum. When we read in verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. We remember again in verse 3 of this chapter. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. This is no trial. Do you remember what Deuteronomy had taught the people of God? We read there, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God is giving you. But there is no justice here. All sorts of violations. For example, that the trial is held at night, which was contrary to the Sanhedrin's rules. Many infractions are taking place. The verdict is a foregone conclusion. This trial is a mock trial. The evidence is falsified. Witnesses did not agree, which was enormously important in Jewish law. And Matthew tells us they were looking for false witnesses. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came 
forward. Little sentence by D.A. Carson. Carson says, when people hate, they readily accept false witness. When people hate, they readily accept false witness. Oh, how we need to be careful not to fall into the trap that sent our Lord to the cross. A willingness to believe falsehood against our neighbor. The text mentions in passing that Peter is following at a distance, joining the guards around the courtyard fire. Jesus has predicted all of this. Keep your finger turned back to chapter 16. Do you remember what our Lord said there in verse 21? In Matthew 16, 21, the Lord said, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day to be raised. Can't you hear the psalms sung in the background? Can't you hear the laments of the innocent sufferer in the psalms? Can't you hear, for example, Psalm 109, verse 2, Wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. Who is this? Christ on trial. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The sustainer of all that is. One in glory with the Father. God who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Christ on trial. The Messiah on trial by men who attempt to discredit his Messiahship, not realizing that his Messiahship was being confirmed right before their very eyes as the suffering servant of Jehovah, the fulfiller of the laments of the Psalms, moves to the cross to bear our sins. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Asked Jesus. Third thing, the charges brought against Jesus. There were two of them. First, that he claimed that he could destroy the temple and then build it back again. He had made no such claim. Now, he could have done it, but he made no such claim. He had purged the temple, cleared away the rubbish, heaped over its typology. He never said that he would destroy the temple with his hands, though he had prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. He had also taught that the temple of his body he would raise in three days, but they did not take the time to ascertain his meaning. The charge was false. The accusers did not care about the truthfulness of their testimony, yet in two ways not meant by them, the charge was true. For Jesus had said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, meaning the temple of his own body. Jesus is the suffering servant, the Passover lamb, the fulfiller of all that the temple meant. I am the meeting point of God and man. That's what the temple meant. That's what I am, the meeting point of God and man. I am the one who will be sacrificed for your sins. He will hang on a cross. The curtain will be torn in two, and God will then build a temple not made with hands, his people who come to faith in him. But they didn't mean that. 
Explain, says the high priest. Explain. But the text tells us Jesus is silent, majestically silent. Isaiah 53, verse 7. As a sheep before its shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Jesus' silence speaks the revelation of the Lamb of God and his willingness to be slaughtered everywhere, everywhere. It is the fulfillment of sacred scripture and God's eternal plan. Second charge, he claimed to be the Son of God. The high priest says in verse 63, The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I adjure you by the living God, an oath, the greatest oath that can be taken on the basis of the life of Jehovah himself. Peter had recognized that Jesus was God's son, but silenced him. The demons had recognized that he was God's son, but Jesus silenced them. Now a direct question from the Jewish high priest. The man is frustrated. Are you or are you not the Christ, the Son of God? The answer he gives, verse 64, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. How does he answer the high priest? Yes, I am the Messiah, but not the Messiah you have in mind. He reveals himself alluding to Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And Jesus points to his resurrection and his enthronement and return at the end of the age. And he is saying, the one you judge now is the king who will judge you at the end of the age. What a self-disclosure. I'm not a political messiah. I've not come to shake off the yoke of Rome from Israel. I'm the savior of the world and the judge of men. And the time of concealment is over. And so the Apostle Paul, preaching in the book of Acts, says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. That's you and me. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's clear what God has done through Christ has not been done in a corner. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The problem is not with the clarity of the signal. It is with the confusion of the sinful receiver of the signal of the gospel. And again, we see the strange authority of Jesus, do we not? Anyone saying these things would be absolutely pathological if he were not the person that he said he was. You cannot take Jesus and say he was a good teacher if you do not believe what he says about himself. Mark tells us that Jesus also answers with the unambiguous, I am. 
Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? I am. Fourth thing. This Messiah, the Son of God, is condemned and mocked. Look at verses 65 and following. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do you need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Listen to that. He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Caiaphas understands that Jesus, son of man reference from Daniel 7, is to the divine figure of Daniel that he's claiming to be the Son of God and the Sovereign Judge. He's the one claiming to come in glory at the end of the age who will stand in judgment over them. Caiaphas, the representative of God's people, has no ear to hear the true high priest who stands before him. Rending garments was a prescription in cases of blasphemy. Rending clothes, however, in this case is not a sign of profound grief. It was really, as someone has said, a concealment of great joy. Now we have him. Now he has confessed. Now we can send him to the cross. He has no interest in defending God's name, this false high priest Caiaphas. But the Father will rend the heart of Jesus, the true high priest of his people on the cross. Christ is condemned by his own people. A charge of blasphemy has been brought against Jesus, the Son of God, Consider that. A charge of blasphemy has been brought against the sinless and holy Son of God by those who are truly the blasphemers and guilty who stand before Jesus. So he's mocked, again fulfilling prophecy. He is spit upon, struck, slapped, Mocked. He calls no angels, displays no power, sits on no seat of judgment. Not yet. But he is fulfilling Isaiah 53 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Satan cannot stand the sight of him. And out in the courtyard, Peter is fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that he would deny him. Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me thrice. The fifth thing we see. Denial. Denial. Peter had said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's just a page back. One page back. Peter said that. One page. Peter follows at a distance. A servant girl is curious about him. You were with Jesus the Galilean. I do not know what you mean. He denies her words before them all. Peter, 
moves into the shadows, into the darkness. Again, denied it with an oath. With an oath, mind you, he swears in God's presence. This is how far Peter has fallen. A little later, he again has the opportunity to own his Lord. I do not know the man. Luke tells us, just as they are leading Christ, Jesus looks Peter in the eye. And it breaks Peter's heart. As the Dutch theologian Schilder put it, Christ opened his eyes and the cock opened its mouth. Listen to Luke. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter has just caught off the servant's ear there in the Garden of Gethsemane. I ask you, is this not when we are most spiritually vulnerable, when we think we are most capable and self-sufficient? And this is the same Peter who will preach boldly in the book of Acts, who will write 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and we are told was crucified for his Lord upside down. Oh, this cross to which Jesus is going, this cross can save you, Peter. This cross can restore you, Peter. This cross can redeem you, inconsistent, failing, faltering child of God. But now Peter's denial leads Jesus into the deeper abyss of his passion. The isolation of Gethsemane only intensifies, and there is Jesus alone, alone, utterly forsaken. Chapter 27, the first two verses. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Sixth point, God in the dock. You remember that? God condemned in court. When Peter attempts to save himself, he in fact condemns himself, showing his need of a redeemer. So you remember Lewis, God in the dock? Used to be, says Lewis, that man approached the thought of God with a sense of sin. I don't know that that's the case. When has that ever been the case, apart from the work of the Spirit of God? But it surely is the case that we moderns are more aggressive in our opposition in many ways. And we moderns arrogantly wish to become the judge of God and his ways. I won't be a follower of a God who does that. I won't be a follower of a God who decrees that. I won't be a follower of a God who... No man can bring God to the bar. No man. Unless. Unless. God takes the stand willingly in the person of his own son. 
ultimately not before man, ultimately before the Father. The condescension of the sovereign God, this is what he has done. Jesus takes our place in the defendant's chair. He takes our guilt in the court of law for us. So that true peace of conscience can come from no other principle but substitutionary atonement, Christ dying in the place of his people. You will find peace of conscience nowhere else. Cleansing of your heart, nowhere else. Removal of guilt, nowhere else. Pardon for sin, nowhere else. Justification in God's court of law, nowhere else. And no other person through no one else's work. So today when people tell us all that matters is that you're sincere, just follow your own view of morality, go to whatever religion you want, have no religion if you wish, just be sincere. That's all that matters, that's all that counts. J.C. Ryle answered that long ago, sincerity is not Christ, therefore sincerity cannot save. God at the bar of justice. We are saved by God from God. That is, from his just wrath we are saved. For being rebellious sinners. By his bearing that wrath for us. No other person can save. No other way but the cross. No substitute will do. But Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who became man, the sinless substitute for his people. No other mediator between God and man. No other redeemer. And so we've seen the first trial. Christ on trial. What's the alternative? What is the alternative? Christ on trial. Is there an alternative? Yeah. Turn to the last book of the Bible. Chapter 20. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20. 
a trial, a day of judgment that is surely coming. Christ on trial. What is the alternative? Here it is. Either trust in Christ, who bore the sinner's punishment in our place as a ransom for sinners, or the alternative, you and me on trial. On trial before God, guilty. On trial without without a prayer. It's that stark, that clear, that cut and dry. Christ on trial for me, or I stand before God on trial in that great day, guilty, helpless, hopeless, hell-deserving. How can you be right before a righteous God? How can you be just in the tribunal of a righteous God? By faith in Christ alone, as the sinner's substitute who bore our judgment for us.